Hi, this is a podcast from the Open University Centre for Law. I'm Phil Bates. I'm Mark Cornock. Today, we're going to be asking, how should health professionals make clinical decisions? How much involvement should the patient have? And do professionals need more guidance, or is there too much already? Mark, what do you mean by clinical decision-making? I think we mean the whole gamut of situation where someone, a health professional, is making decisions for, with, and about a patient, a client, so including things in the hospital, in GP surgeries, in the community, um, anywhere really where someone has a condition, a disease, where someone is helping them with it. So it sounds like you're talking about a whole range of health professionals, not just doctors. Yeah, I mean everything from sort of the, the doctor, the nurse, the physio, the chiropodist, podiatrist, through even including social workers and sort of the auxiliary professions, healthcare assistants, for instance. So how much guidance is there to guide that decision-making? I think that's possibly one of the areas where there is actually an issue in that there's a lot of guidance, um, and the guidance has different weight to it. There's legal guidance, I mean, for instance, the law as a whole, and there's specific legal guidance, for instance, the Mental Capacity Act of 2005, through to professional guidance, ethical principles. So there's a lot of guidance out there, and one of the problems a health professional sometimes has is knowing which guidance to follow. Um, there can be conflicting guidance, ethical principles and legal principles, whilst usually following the same channel, can sometimes conflict with each other. Informed consent is one area where the law has a different view to the ethical principles, for instance. And how do health professionals find out about all this guidance? Um, that's, that's quite an interesting area. I mean, medical students at the moment, uh, their curriculum has to include ethical guidance as part of the training. Other health professionals, it's not mandatory that it's included, but generally it's included in sort of their pre-registration training and education. The problem that exists is the professionals who qualified some time ago where it wasn't mandatory, and essentially they're picking up on the job. So in all this guidance, where's the patient's position? The patient's position today is a lot better than it was 20, 30 years ago. I think if we look at, for instance, 30 years ago, there was quite a paternalistic attitude. Doctors were generally in charge of health care. Nurses and the other health professionals could be said to be subservient to them in some ways. And it was generally the doctor's perspective on what the patient needed or what they felt they needed. So the doctor would make a decision and the patient would receive that treatment with very little input from the patient in most instances. Whereas nowadays, it tends to be more of a teamwork. So the patient has their needs considered, gives their opinion, is involved in a kind of partnership. The problem with that is that kind of implies uh, with autonomy that there's an equal partnership between the health professional and the patient, whereas it's not really equal. The person, the health professional, the doctor, the nurse, the physiotherapist has the knowledge and the skills to know what treatment could be offered and also how that treatment will affect the patient, whereas the patient is generally a passive receiver of the information and then is asked to make a decision based upon that information in quite a short time space usually. So the patient is there, they are involved, but one has to consider whether that's the best outcome for the patient. I mean, the recent uh, white paper um, has a, a wonderful phrase in it, no decision for me, without me. Well, that's a, a good principle, 
but not every patient can actually sort of have that fulfilled for them. There are some patients who actually don't want to be involved. They'd much rather take, you know, the paternalistic view where they go in, someone gives them a diagnosis, explains their condition to them, and then makes decisions or offers a treatment, and the patient receives the treatment. Don't most patients just agree to whatever the professional tells them is the best thing to do? In terms of not requesting different treatments, I, I would think so. I wouldn't say they just receive the treatment. I think they probably ask questions and they want information about it, but I think they will take the treatment that's offered without sort of necessarily asking for a second opinion or asking for alternative treatments. They may go in, um, I don't know, if I had a cold and I went to my GP, I would probably would ask for antibiotics and be told I'm not going to have the antibiotics and I would go out with antibiotics. But I think... Um, I wouldn't go in and then demand that I have some complementary therapy. So I think you're right in, in, in general, yes. And you, you said there's all of this guidance and sometimes it uh, is conflicting or confusing. Do we need to simplify things and reduce the amount of information that's out there? I think that would be a good starting principle, would be to reduce the information. And I think the way possibly we could do that or the way we could do that would be to actually limit who can issue the guidance. I think if we're having guidance in terms of law, as in laws of the land, Mental Capacity Act, for instance, Mental Health Act, um, I would consider that to be more than guidance. Then we have the professional bodies issuing guidance, suggesting things on what should be done for consent, involving the patient, um, ensuring the patient's voice is heard. And then we have guidance from other bodies, for instance, the Consumers Association will give guidance. National Institute on Clinical Excellence releases guidance on certain treatments. Um, the Care Quality Commission. I think at one stage when I did a count, there's about 31 different bodies that can issue guidance, which I mean, any situation where there, there's a, a numerous number of bodies that can give guidance, reducing it is a good first step. But aren't most health professionals going to want to have guidance that's specifically from their own professional group so that nurses will want there to be a particular guidance for nurses and so on? I think you're right, I, I, but I think that's each part of the problem. I think every group, the podiatrist wants it from their council, the, the optician from theirs, and I think that's what, that's what you said. And I think you're right, but one has to question, is that right? Because if health professionals are all doing the same job in terms of they're all looking after the patient, how the patient's best interest is heart, and there's guidance on consent, it'd be reasonable to assume that the consent for the doctor, for the nurse, for the physiotherapist, for the podiatrist should all say the same thing. Therefore, does it matter whether guidance comes from the medical council, the nursing council, or should it just be that someone, somebody, issues guidance on consent for the healthcare professional? You could even argue that, you know, why do we have all these separate bodies representing all these different groups? We could argue, why do we have separate bodies for each of the distinct health professionals? Shouldn't we have one body that covers all of them? But isn't part of being a profession that you're self-regulating, that you make rules for yourself? If you're being told what to do by official guidance, are you still a professional? I think the notion of self-regulating professionals has gone. I think it, it was a great principle, a great ideal 
And in the 1800s, when freshness were being set up, it was one of the guiding principles. I think with the aftermath of the Shipman Inquiry, the Bristol Royal Infirmary Inquiry, um, I don't think it ex- exists anymore. There, there are so many bodies that can impact on a healthcare professional that the notion that they're self-regulating, I, I think, is gone. I think that a health professional realises that because the patient is in a vulnerable position, and the power is basically with them. Their professional role is to assist the patient through that. Therefore, they assist the patient, they help the patient, advise them, they guide them, they coach them when necessary. What they can do is use that guidance for the benefit of the patient. Therefore, the fact that it hasn't, if it was a nurse, for instance, it hasn't come from the nursing council, but it's come from the Council of Healthcare Regulatory Excellence, isn't um, a negative aspect. It's positive in that it allows them to interact with the patient in a far better way. Is all of this guidance national or do we have international guidance as well that we need to take into account? We have international guidance, we have national guidance and then we have more local guidance. When we talked earlier about the, the influence of the guidance and the amount of guidance, I think that's part of the problem as well in that you can have international ethics and international codes I mean, you know, the Helsinki Code, for instance, that is then sort of filtered down into a national code. So, for instance, the the doctors have good medical practice, nurses have the code of conduct. And from that, a local trust, an ambulance trust, a hospital trust, a GP surgery, will then distill that into their own local policy. So if you work in that area, there are three key principles of guidance that you have to consider where essentially, if there was the one guidance that affected everyone, it would be much easier for the person involved and also patients to be able to read it and understand what they can expect from the healthcare professional. One final thing. If we have all this guidance and some of it is legally binding and some of it's ethical, is there ever a situation where there's a conflict between the legal requirements and the ethical guidance? I think there is, yes. Um, The problem with having guidance that comes from various quarters is, as you say, legal guidance considered to be legally binding. Um, The healthcare professional thinks they have to follow it and do. Ethical guidance is generally there to give an overview for someone to work within a boundary. And from the ethical guidance, usually the professional guidance flows and also takes consideration of the legal perspective. And if we take the issue of consent, the legal perspective is very clear. The Mental Capacity Act um, lays down certain procedures that have to be followed in situations, whereas the ethical guidance is more loose. It allows people to work within a boundary. Uh, one of the problems we have is, for instance, with informed consent. There isn't a legal principle of informed consent in English law. However, the ethical principles always put it forward and say that the patient should receive all the information regarding a procedure. Yet from a professional perspective, that isn't um, practical and doesn't happen, which leads you to believe that if that isn't happening, does that mean the health professional is failing the ethical principle? But then when you look at the legal perspective, it says it doesn't have to be as long as you give the right amount of information so they conflict which isn't a satisfactory situation for the health professional, nor for the patient. Great. Thank you. That's been really interesting. That will give me a lot of new things to worry about the next time I go and see a doctor. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.